Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, July 23, 2023. The share ID numbers for Friday, July 21st are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 20,463, that's 20463. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 20,464, that's 20464. This morning, A Vision for You presents a very special edition as it celebrates its 11th anniversary. Twelve testimonials as to the experience and the results of the program of recovery and a relationship with power. In some respect, the word anniversary is not a suitable term to describe this occasion, for it carries the implication that a goal a resting point on a journey has been reached. The program of recovery, however, has no finish line. So, too, our work as a group, a society, who must continue to prudently cleave to its single purpose, the carrying of the message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Many people consider the program of recovery, the 12 steps, one of the greatest miracles of the 20th century. There's no telling how many lives have been touched and transformed by the 12 steps. The sole purpose of this step work is to find power through the experience of a spiritual awakening. The 12 steps enable people of all walks of life, all different types from all different backgrounds, in spite of all odds, to exchange transformation like never seen anywhere else. Yes, as the big book states, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. Today, A Vision for You celebrates its 11th anniversary. 11 years of coming together each morning to crack open the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous and to bring it to life based on our experience as recovered compulsive overeaters. The spiritual chain reaction that grew from Ebby and Bill to Dr. Bob in Akron to Roseanne S. in California with Overeaters Anonymous beginning on January 19, 1960 to a Vision for You, which began July 18, 2012, and has stretched to countless compulsive overeaters 
with a membership in excess of 11,000 and represents all 50 states and over 65 countries. As the Big Book states, we have recovered and been given the power to help others. Yes, it's true. God uses recovered people. Yes, we celebrate the wonderful growth of a vision for you in the 11th year of its founding. We marvel and we rejoice that the near impossible beginning with 40 members to now a membership of over 11,000 has really happened. But congratulatory periods can tend to smugness and resting periods to retrogression. We continue to have a responsibility to carry the message of recovery to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. No matter how different our own personal concerns, we are all bound together by one common responsibility. Clearly, our first duty to a vision for you and Overeaters Anonymous's future is to maintain and grow in full strength what we now have. Never should we be lulled into complacent self-satisfaction by our seeming success or allow unthinking enthusiasm to put us off the main track. This is the subtle temptation which could stagnate us today or disintegrate us tomorrow. Our chief responsibility to the newcomer must always be an adequate presentation of the program of recovery. Our fellowship has been permitted to achieve only by God's grace, God's love, and God's mercy. As a fellowship, we ask nothing of power, nothing of personal success or recognition, but we do have an enormous interest in having influence. We want to touch lives. As we better use the language of the heart, may we, with God's blessings, continue to grow. For so long as we remain sure that our growth is God's gift rather than any virtue earned or created by ourselves, and for so long as our fellowship around the world continues to be ever more inclusive of those in need, and for so long as we speak the language of the heart, the language of love, the language of service, for just so long will our true ambition be the deep desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. Today, you will hear from 12 voices, 12 recovered compulsive overeaters, each describing in their own personal way how the individual steps have changed them. 12 voices weaving together 12 stories of transformation Messages of depth and weight, creating a powerful message of hope and possibility. So let's get started. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I welcome Allison L., 
from South Carolina. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, Vision, for you. I'm grateful to be here and to have experience, strength, and hope from my higher power as a gift to share with you all today. Um, I'm Allison L. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Carolina. Um, I've been uh, coming to Vision for You for nine years. I've been living in a state of recovery for seven years, enjoying the promises and living life free from the obsession of the mind. Um, to qualify, I've been 70 pounds heavier than I am now. My whole life, I dieted up and down. I binged, I purged. Um, my life was unmanageable because I couldn't do the things I wanted to do. I couldn't be kind and loving when I wanted to be. I couldn't stop eating when I wanted to stop eating. I did the things I didn't want to do. As I was being unkind at times, I would think, stop acting this way, but I could not. I would think, stop eating this, and I could not because I don't have power. And that's why diets didn't work for me because I don't have the power to stay abstinent and continue to eat the way that I wanted to. Um, I don't have power. And when I came to Vision for You, what I what I heard from the big book and the doctor's opinion and from all of you uh, was about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind and those being the root of my powerlessness. And that made sense to me. Um, it gave me an explanation for why I needed to be entirely abstinent and work the steps in order to have this psychic change. And, and I have to say part of my step one experience was continuing to come to meetings, continuing to listen to stories, continuing to study the big book, even though I felt like I'd heard this a million times, the same thing, allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. Yes, I know, be entirely abstinent, work through the steps. But one day after I had struggled for three years trying things my way, I heard that same message and it sunk to my core and I knew that this would have to be my way of life, to be entirely abstinent for real and to work through the steps fully, completely if I wanted to have a life and not just suffer a little bit less sometimes by using the steps and tools the way that I wanted to. And so um, in the doctor's opinion, page XXVIII, um, the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. The phenomenon of craving is limited to this class, never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit, they find they cannot break it. And then if you, if we go one page over on page XXX, second to last paragraph, talking again about the allergy, the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. So that explained to me why I had to be entirely abstinent, why I can't go to a restaurant and just not ask what are in, what's in things. Because it doesn't matter if my mind knows there's something in there that I'm allergic to. If I don't ask and I don't know, my body still knows because I have an allergy and I will, I will react abnormally. It's biologically mandated. That's what will happen. And so that for me was like, I, I must be entirely absent. I must get rid of all the foods, all the combinations, all the behaviors that trigger that physical reaction. And also in the big book, page XXVIII, it tells me that before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit, I must be free from this. I must be free from the physical craving, 
for liquor, as it says, for me, for food. So that's the only solution for me from this physical part of my problem. I must be entirely abstinent. And once I became entirely abstinent, I realized my mind did not like that at all. It was very uncomfortable. And that's described, um, you know, and there is a solution, page 23, because the the main problem for me is in my mind, not my body. Once I'm abstinent, my mind says, we don't like this. Let's not be abstinent anymore. I think we can eat some of those things again because life is uncomfortable and real. And we don't know how to do this. We don't know how to feel these things. We don't know how to deal with uncertainty. We don't know how to deal with discomfort. And so my mind will get hooked on this idea that food is somehow going to help, that I can do it again, or that it's not that big of a deal. Um, and, and it's, you know, what's the solution for that part of the problem? And it tells me that in the big book, XXI. What is the solution is the very first line of that. And a little further down it says, for this person they're giving an example of the solution, accepting the plan outlined in this book, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. What's the plan outlined? Well, it starts with being entirely abstinent in the doctor's opinion, and from there, it walks us through the remaining 12 steps. And that's how I have to live my life, always beginning with entire abstinence every day, every morning, because I will never get that power back. I will always be powerless. I will always have this physical allergy. There's no cure for this physical allergy. Um, it can go um, quiet for me because I'm not triggering it. And the uh, mental part of it is quieted because I work the 12 steps and I tap into a power greater than myself that allows me to bear discomfort of life, that allows me to work through resentments and fears and insecurities and character defects of all sorts and types and relationship issues um, because there are specific instructions that um, my fellows are going to go into and share their experience with those specific instructions. And um, I've been free uh, of the obsession of the mind. I've not thought that food sounded like a good idea for seven years. Um, and that frees up a lot of space to live my life <laughs> and to live in the promises. And I still bear the discomfort of not knowing what tomorrow will be. But for today, I'm, I have everything I need right here. I'm grateful to be here uh, with my fellows doing this together, shoulder to shoulder. And I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Allison L. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I welcome Craig F. from Oklahoma. Thank you, Leah. Uh, this is Craig F., recovered in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, I'm uh, privileged and, and excited to be here, part of this celebration. Uh, I, I think that uh, this healthy Big Book meeting, this uh, uh, vision for you has saved my life um, and uh, gotten me through uh, a, a lot. Uh, in the last, I've been coming for uh, uh, six and a half years to vision for you. Um, my, uh, my story, uh, my qualification of Briefly, uh, began. Uh, I think I was always a compulsive reader, but uh, 
uh, weight became a problem until I uh, got some freedom from my parents. And uh, in my teenage years, uh, my uh, I reported for football uh, my junior year of high school, and my coach, my basketball coach, said he needed me to take off 20 pounds, and that was my first attempt at dieting when I was 16 years old. And uh, uh, you know that that first that that 20 pounds at that age that was a pretty easy thing. Uh, uh, I didn't do it right, but it, it, the weight came off anyway, and uh, I. Uh, uh, Kept that off for a couple of years, uh, and through just uh, lifestyle exercising, and and thought I had uh, had this weight management thing down to a for a pretty easy science, but uh, my twenties and my thirties proved that to be wrong. Uh, I uh, uh, would gain weight, and uh, I'd always be surprised when I stood on the scale. And I did everything that I knew how to do. I look back on that and think, I did. I did everything I knew how to do. I just didn't know how to do it uh, right. I uh, tried every diet that uh, that was in front of me. Uh, I, I did pay and weigh three different times. I did uh, we, diets out of magazines. I did uh, cabbage soup cleanses. I did uh, uh, the 500-calorie-a-day diet from the... From a doctor uh, that you know with the uh, hormone shots and the amphetamines and the and the vitamin shots, I did a the drinking man's diet. Uh, I did I did I did everything I knew how to do, and uh, it it they they always worked uh, until they didn't work, and then they didn't work anymore. Uh, and so my weight went up. And then down, and then up and down, but it always went up higher. And and, the, and when it came down, it didn't come all the way down. And uh, so I, I yo-yoed, and I dieted my way from uh, from the 220. I'm um, 6'4. I dieted my way from 6'3. I guess from the 220, I weighed it when I graduated high school to uh, to my entrance into Overeaters Anonymous at 410 pounds. And I caught fire when I came in, uh, I, but what I caught fire with was uh, dieting with group support, and uh, uh, it, and that worked for a while until it didn't work anymore. And then I went through a lot of years of, uh, of uh, diet and relapse, and uh, of, and but I looked at the steps, you know, and I tried to work the steps, and I'd seen them on the wall, and I'd read them, and. And the second step, I thought, I didn't even give it much of a thought. You know, my, my thought was, um, my thought was, that's easy for me. I, of course, I believe in God. I was raised with the belief in God. I, I, I've seen things that I that lead me to believe there's a God and that he cares about me. But so, yeah, I uh, don't see that, that, that uh, that's going to be a problem, you know, uh, I believe God can restore me to sanity. Of course, God can restore me to sanity. Sanity, God can do anything. He's God. Well, there's a couple of problems with that thought process. The first one is that if I'm going to believe that God can restore me to sanity, I I have to believe that I'm not sane. <laughs> you know, uh, I have to believe that uh, in the core of my being that I am not that I'm 
not powerless over food, that I have no, that that I have a, a spiritual malady. And if I am so proud of my uh, religious ideas that that I cannot accept the fact that I have a spiritual malady, if I if I'm so proud of my uh, so egoistical about my uh, state of being that I can't say that I have been insane when it comes to food, then I am uh, uh, not uh, going to say, I'm not going to get to the point where I can accept the fact that I need God to restore me to sanity. And, and, and that was my, that, that was my tripping point. Uh, this thing that I thought was going to be so easy was my tripping point because uh, I, I was uh, trying to do it myself. You know, I was still trying to operate in self-will. And and it doesn't work. It, did, it certainly didn't work for me. So I had to come. I was sitting in the second step meeting one night, and I came to the realization that this God that I believed in would be of help to me would be the power that I need in order to stay abstinent. That if, if I am uh, if I am going to make this, that I have to have uh, I have to be a, the lower power. And, and so instead of saying that this idea that uh, that um, I have to be I have to do what God t- you know wants me to do. That I have to, that I come to the realization that God will help me do the things I need to do, and that there's a subtle difference in that, a difference that took me a long time to get a hold of. But once I did, um, it, it, it brings me to to, to this idea, the this sanity that, that's promised uh, on page 85. Uh, it says, uh, "What we really have is a daily retreat." contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition for the spiritual malady. And with that, I'll pass. I think my seven minutes are up. Thank you. Thank you, Craig S. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And I welcome Terry W., Terry W, star one to unmute. Hi, everyone. This is Terry W, and I am from Newton, Massachusetts, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, anorexic, and bulimic, one day at a time. Very grateful to be here this morning. I have been in this program 32 years, and if it were not this program, I would be dead many, many years ago. So before I talk about step three, I'm going to share a little bit about myself. Um, I was born a compulsive overeater, and I distinctly remember when I was three years old, climbing up a stool and eating a bottle of baby aspirin. And I also remember the year after that, climbing up that same stool and I ate a whole bottle of, of baby, baby little vitamins. You know, and then as a child, I began to eat toys. Yeah, I, this is true. I know not many kids eat their toys, but I had a large plastic Gumby figurine toy and I can remember I ate all the plastic off it, and I was so proud of myself. I would go to my mom with a wire in my hand, saying, Mom, look, I ate my whole Gumby. 
I don't, and I don't know why I was so proud of that. But, you know, I can remember growing up, I, I ate massive amounts of food. And as I got a little older, I can remember my mother would bring home like a dozen donuts on Sundays, and I would eat 11 of them. You know, I would get punished, of course, but that happened every Sunday. I wanted all of the donuts. So for me, food was really fun. And I remember in grade school, I had to be, I think, around seven years old. I was the coolest kid in school because I would wear necklaces made of Fruit Loops and cereals, like Cheerios. So I used to actually take a string, take the cereal, tie a little knot, and I wear the cereal around my neck and bring it to school, thinking I was so cool. But I will say that most of the time it was gone before I got to school and I ate the whole thing. But again, you know, food was everything to me. And then I always ate twice as much as my boyfriends. But you know what? I would never gain weight. I was a gymnast and I was practicing every day. And I mean, I was a gymnastic meet. I could eat anything. But you know what? Somehow as I got older, food wasn't fun anymore. It was the center of my life. Um, I would go out to dinner with my friends. And when I got home, I cannot remember a thing we talked about. But I can tell you what they ate. Um, and dating was also focused on food. If you did not take me out to a very fancy, expensive restaurant on a Saturday night, I wouldn't date you. You know, it was all about the food. So eating was fun until it wasn't. And I knew I began to need help because food started to control my life. And it started to control my every thought of the day. Um, when I was in my early 30s, anorexia started to emerge. And I'll tell you a little bit about my day in anorexia. I had to walk five miles a day. Uh, I would put food in my mouth, chew it, and spit it into a napkin. I wouldn't swallow it. Um, I allowed myself two bran muffins a day at one point. And another time, I would eat five to six raisins a day, and that's all I would allow myself to eat. Uh, if I weighed over 10 pounds, I wouldn't leave the house. I covered my windows in construction paper so no one could see me or look in. So my friends would come over, and I wouldn't even open the door, and I wouldn't answer the phone. I would just cry all day. Um, you know, and my obsessive compulsive behavior was so bad. Um, I had to vacuum my house like every couple hours. I had to touch my stove 10 to 20 times a day. But, you know, it was really, I was 70 pounds. And I still, I thought nothing was wrong. Um, but there's no question I was powerless over, over food. And my life was unmanageable. As we just talked about step one. I got fired from my job. They repossessed my car. They turned the gas off in my house. I was four months behind in my rent. And so, yeah, my life was unmanageable. But anorexia wasn't bad. And, you know, as I said, I just thought I was fat. But um, real quickly, it came to bulimia. And that brought me to the gates of hell. Um, you know, I, my girlfriend taught me how to throw up. And it ended up where I was eating and throwing up 13 hours a day. Um, I wake up at five or six and call the coffee shops and request two dozen donuts. I would spend the morning and day planning the food I had to get. Um, I spent most of the day setting up my kitchen so everything was in the right place. And, you know, once my car broke down and I started to have a panic, panic attack because I had to get this food. No matter what it took, I had to have this food. So you know what I did? I rented a U-Haul moving truck. So not did I move a family with furniture? I went shopping for my junk food with a U-Haul truck. Um, but I would have you know, panic attacks if I wasn't binging. And you know, I'd have three gallons of ice cream every day. I would throw up. I'd stick my head in the toilet anywhere. There'd be throw up on my clothes. 
it was just horrible. And you know what? I would take, when I was done eating, I'd spray Windex and Lysol all over the food so I wouldn't binge on the rest of it. And, you know, I'd go throw it in the trash and two minutes later, I'd be eating it. So food controlled me and I could not stop and I could no longer control what I ate. And my bulimia was like the gates of hell. So I had to do something. And I found Overeaters Anonymous at a meeting. And at one of these meetings, a woman grabbed my hand. She said, you're going to do what I tell you to do. And I was so scared and horrified. I just did whatever she told me to do. And she wanted me, I was so scared to eat food. She wanted me to eat a real meal. And I mean, I ate eight raisins a day and she wants me to eat a meal. So you know what? I had to just be willing. So where did I begin? I need to be willing to believe in a power grave and myself to restore me to sanity. And I began this by co-creating with a power grave and myself, who I call God. And now God enables me to do what I need to do through his power. So I learned through the 12 steps my whole life revolved around um, hold the way of life. Step one, we're powerless over food and our lives are unmanageable. Yeah, we just heard about that from Allison. Two, came to believe the power greater than ourselves can resource to sanity. Now that we know we're powerless and helpless, we realize nothing but a higher power can restore us to sanity. Now step three changed my world. And this is the first action step. Step three, I made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the God as we understand him. Now this is my verbal contract to God. I am committing to him. So the third step prayer could be found on page 63 in the big book. And it starts, God, I offer myself to thee, to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may be witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, life, and I do thou always. So step three, I made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to care of God as we understand him. And my sponsor, not only did I read step three with her, she had asked me to go into a live meeting, get on my knees and do this in front of a meeting, because that's how the first 100 people did it. And I said, are you crazy? There's no way I'm going to get in front of a whole group of people and do the third step prayer on my knees. But you know what? I did that because that's what she had asked me to do. So let's take a look at step three. What does it really mean? God, I offer myself to thee. Well, this is the first part of the third step. It's a declaration that you're giving God control. And this reminds us that we are no longer running the show. And it says in the big book on page 84, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. So we've been reminded that we've been offered ourselves to God. And he is now in the driver's seat, not me. To build with me and do as thou wilt. That's the second line. This is the realization of life is no longer a business. We're allowing God to do his work in our lives. And you know what? My business, I have no business over my food. I have no business over my weight. And everything is God's control because I cannot control anything. Um, third line, relieve me of the bondage of self, then I better do thy will. So here we're acknowledging we've been in bondage to ourselves. I was in bondage to myself with my ego my whole life. Um, and now we're going to release this power to, to God and give him control. And we're beginning our transition now from our will to God's will. Take away my difficulties, the victory over them may be witness to those out help of thy power, thy love, and their way of life. But we now know only God can relieve our difficulties of giving him the power to do so. So that's bringing it down to each single, in, 
sentence. But what makes step three unique, though, is it requires a commitment rather than acceptance. So step one asks us to admit we're powerless over alcohol. And step two wants us to believe in a power greater than ourselves. But both of these steps are reflective. They ask you to observe and accept them to be true. But step three is the first one that actively you decide to trust your higher power and let go of these things that are beyond your control, including addiction. AA often calls this the step, the key of willingness, which opens the door to recovery. So step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him. In the AA 12 and 12 on page 34, every time I read this, I just want to cry. It's the most heartful thing. Um, it starts practicing step three is like opening a door to which all appearances are closed and locked. All we need is a key and the decision to swing the door open. This key is called willingness. And then on 35, once unlocked by willingness, the door opens almost all by itself. And looking through it, we shall see a pathway beside, which is an inscription that reads, this is the way to faith that works. So step one and two is all about reflection. And now in step three, we call for action. And only by action can we cut away self-will, which has always blocked us from God. Um, once you put the key of willingness in that door, it opens slightly slightly and the rest of the steps swing, swing the door open and you know I have to say when I was asked you know what my favorite step is they're all my favorite steps because you can't this is the instruction manual and we need all 12 so um, although this was an amazing step for me I think the other ones are also just as important and I want to thank you for letting me share and I pass thank you Terry W step four made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I welcome CBB from Vermont. Thank you, Leah. Thank you for this wonderful celebration of um, a vision for you. So um, Terry just talked about step three. Uh, the door is open to a faith that works. And now we move on to step four. So before I talk about step four, I'm just going to give you a brief history. I'm the real deal. I'm a critical level compulsive overeater, food addict. I am a, um, I am a compulsive, a recovered compulsive overeater. Um, I have black and white abstinence for um, almost seven years, and I've been listening to Vision for You since the fall of 2012. Eleven years, almost since the beginning. Um, so I am maintaining a 98 to 100 pound weight loss. And the reason that I know that I am the real deal is because once I start, I can't stop. And I can't stop from starting once the substances are in my system. It's really been this way since I was eight years old when I discovered that sweet, fatty foods, um, <clears throat> numbed feelings I was experiencing from long-term childhood sexual trauma, which I know lots of people in these rooms experienced for over seven years in my childhood. The allergy was born. Um, I was born into a family with a propensity for addiction. So um, the DNA was there. And I spent decades of programs, self-help programs, medications, pay and weigh. I lost and gained hundreds of pounds. Self-reliance you know, it served me well until it didn't. And that self-reliance turned into fixing and controlling, which created serious challenges in my family with my siblings. Um, 
So recovery from the food came first and admitting my powerlessness and how unmanageable my life had become. The only relief, as it says in the doctor's opinion on page XXX, was that they found was entire abstinence. So the substances were down finally on October 28, 2016. And I began to work through the steps. I worked through the steps before a number of times but I was never fully abstinent when I was working them, and I was completely operating on self-will and self-reliance. So how, the question that Leah asked, how has step four been life-changing for me? So I had to do, and I had done step fours before, but this step four, once I was black and white abstinent, was different. I had to do a deep look at me my resentments. On page 66, it says, it is plain a life which included deep resentments leads only to futility and unhappiness. I was unhappiness. I was unhappy. My relationships, especially with my siblings at a particular time, were fractured. Step four was the portal to a happier life. Terry referred to a door. So now we have a portal to a happier life and healing those relationships with lots of help from my higher power. But I had to do the work. I had to take the action. I had willingness. I was willing for my higher power to sit there and nudge me. I call the God nudges on my shoulder. Um, but I had to do the work of the inventory and the house cleaning, which is a deep dive into me, my flaws, and my instincts. So I'm going to give you just a few examples and I'm not going to do them all. I'm just going to do a few examples related to my siblings. Um, so writing the resentment, then looking at how um, those interfered with my instincts. And I love that word on page 65. How did that interfere with my instincts? So self-esteem. Well, I see myself as the best sister. But my fear is, maybe I'm not. It affects my security. I need my siblings to do something in order for me to be okay. But the fear is, maybe they don't care. It affects my personal relations. A real woman or man should be able to be tolerant and patient. Well, maybe they don't want to. So you notice that I include the fears there. And on page 67, it says Fear, this short word, somehow touches every aspect of our lives. And that's absolutely true. I would say the game changer of step four has been the realization. At the bottom of page 66, it says, we realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. And then on page 67, it says, they, like ourselves, were sick too. So then I learned the sick man's prayer. This is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. And in the story, Freedom from Bondage, it talks about doing the sick man's prayer every day for two weeks when we have a resentment. And I've done that a number of times. And it's really humbling, which then contributes to a more open mind in looking at my selfishness, my thoughts my self-seeking, my behaviors, my dishonesty, lies I tell myself, 
And often I want the person to be different. And my fears, and I get the fears from looking at my instincts. So looking at my instincts that have interfered with um, with those resentments, then what harm had I done? So that sets a roadmap for steps five through nine. By the end, normally it turns it around on me. And step five, sharing with God and another person. And you're going to hear that about that in just a minute. So on page 54 in the 12 and 12, it says it's the tangible evidence of my willingness to keep moving forward. That's the impact that step four keeps me moving in a forward direction and makes my recovery dynamic rather than static. I'm never done. Step four reminds me that I'm human and I have work to do every day. I get to look at my character and my behaviors. What are my shortcomings that if they're not addressed in five through nine would ultimately lead me back to the food? Like that little girl who sought ease and comfort in the food. As Leah said at the beginning, this work moves us towards hope. And I'm going to pass now as we move on to step five. And thank you for allowing me to share. Thank you, PBB. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. I welcome Lisa H. from Tennessee. Good morning. Good morning, A Vision for You, and happy anniversary. Happy 11th anniversary. I'm Lisa H., and I am a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater from Tennessee. I've been listening and learning and serving on a vision for you um, for almost eight and a half years. And when I found a vision for you, I found hope. I found out that I had an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. And I found the solution in the big book and through working these steps. But prior to OA, I cannot remember a time when my thoughts and my decisions weren't consumed by food and weight. Like many of us, I, I was relatively normal in many other aspects of life, but spent decades on the latest diet, and I lost and gained, I lost and gained, lost and gained over and over again. Um, you know, I heard um, during this time, right, I heard... There's no reason for you to be fat. Why can't you just push away from the table? Well, you can moderate. And then when I would moderate and I would get to go away and they would say, now you can reintroduce, um, you know, that, that, that word moderation and reintroduce um, was a death sentence for me. Um, but what I came to find out is that um, it was this over-reliance on self this over-reliance on self and the mental obsession around food and weight was killing me. OA teaches me to trust God, clean house, and help others. And step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs, is what I'm going to talk about this morning. I'm drawn to the word admit, um, this is the second time we hear admit, right? We hear it in step one, the very first word admitted we were powerless over food. And now we're going to admit. Admit means agreeing that something is true, 
It's making an honest statement, even though it may be embarrassing. And this takes courage and humility. And the only way, right, I'm going to be able to admit to God, to myself and another human being is if I have truly worked the four previous steps, right, that I am, um, I am abstinent, I am, I am abstinent um, and, and have done this inventory, right? So um, on page 73, um, it does say that we must be entirely honest with somebody if we are going to live long and happily in this world. So this really required um, honesty on my part. Um, I've done several fifth steps, but I, but I, but Leah sort of indicated to talk about which ones were most transformative. Um, of course, the the first one I did um, with my sponsor. You know, we have I've written I've written a, an inventory, and I'm prepared for a long talk. Um, which which with my sponsor um, many years ago, the first one took several hours. Um, I then you know continued to follow directions, and on page seventy four where it says those of us belonging to a religious denomination which requires confession must, of course, must and, of course, will want to go to the properly appointed authority whose duty it is to receive it. So after I, I wanted to follow that instructions, and it felt important to me um, to talk to a clergy about that, this, this step. And I, we just happened to have a friend who was, who was recovered in AA, who was a clergy person. And so I made an appointment um, and, and sat down and shared this with him. And of course, the thing that came out with my sponsor and the thing that came out with this recovered clergy was fear. That every underneath all of my resent, resentments, um, my behaviors in the past was fear. This fear of not being enough, good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, thin enough, just I wasn't enough. Um, and he suggested, right, very similar to the things that my sponsor suggested, that I start um, using the fear prayer, um, which I did. The other, the other thing um, that he suggested was that I use the set-aside prayer. And so that prior to every event, um, something that might create fear in me, I would use the set-aside prayer you know, so that I had an open heart and an open mind um, and have a new experience. And, and this really helped me move from fear, certainly to faith, but also gratitude. Um, and I started <clears throat> making a gratitude list every day so that I could focus on those things in my life that I was grateful for and not the things that I didn't have. The second um, fifth step I did or one of the fifth steps I did, I went and spoke with another um, clergy and, um, you know, gave away these things, these resentments, um, dishonesties, fears, all those things. And at the very end of that um, time, he suggested that I close my eyes. And it's a little bit like walking away for an hour. Um, and I closed my eyes and immediately my brother's face popped into my head. And tears came. And he said to me, you know, like, wow, um, what were the tears for? And what I realized was 
um, that I hadn't forgiven my brother. He was at the top of my resentment list, um, but I realized that I hadn't forgiven him. You know, and and God, right, gave me, I think brought him to mind um, to show me, right, that God forgives me. God has forgiven me for all of these past failures and that I, in turn, can forgive others. Um, This was a profound, profound thing for me. And um, I want to end with these promises right on page 75. Because once we've taken this fifth step withholding nothing, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall away from us and we begin to feel the nearness of our creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but we now begin to have a spiritual experience. And these steps five, these step fives, you know, this is a huge step for me toward clearing away the wreckage of my past and help me to step toward a God-centered life as opposed to a self-centered life. And again, at the, at the end of it says, we thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better. And this helps us to move on um, and to continue the action in the remaining steps. And with that, I pass. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Lisa H. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. I welcome Tony Ann A. from New Jersey. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, everybody, and welcome. Especially welcome to the newcomers and happy anniversary of Vision for You. I've been a member of a Vision for You since 2014, and I have to say that the close study of the big book uh, has definitely changed my life. Um, I just want to give a quick qualification. I came into program in October 2000. I have been up the scale and down the scale uh, to a differential of 100 pounds. Today, I am on a right-sized body, and uh, I'm grateful for that. But the, the more important aspect of what I'm doing here is being in a right-sized mind. And that took a lot more work than the right-sized body. I do have to say, in the doctor's opinion, it does say that the main crux of our problem centers in the mind. So how is it that I was able to change my mind? Well, let me tell you a little bit about what I did. Uh, for the most part of my life, I spent seeking things, looking to acquire more. Uh, more validation, uh, just more of everything, filling myself with things to make me feel happy. And none of those things made me feel happy. Uh, I was miserable inside. I, I, I just didn't even know how to be comfortable. I didn't know what that felt like. And so I came into here, and um, the first thing I had to do, of course, is put down the food. And then I worked the program, and I'm going to give you a very abridged version um, I did fourth steps, and in, in the first one I ever did, it was just basically a narrative. And then uh, after that, the second time I did do a back to basics, and each time I got some relief, but I really didn't get a change. And as a matter of fact, um, I would get comfortable, I would do the work until I got comfortable, and then I would stop doing the work, and then I would go back to being miserable again. I would do the work again until I became comfortable, and it was a pattern for me. So that instead of moving forward to a transformation, I would do this dance where I took a step forward, one back, one forward and back. 
and that I just wasn't on a road that was going anywhere. Uh, eventually, what happened was I, I, I thought that uh, picking up was a great idea, not a good idea, I have to say, and for two years, I spent on a slippery slope of relapse. When I finally got back into the rooms in 2014, I was so desperate and miserable that I was willing to do whatever it took this time. I met a sponsor who was very passionate, and she took me through the steps as they're written in the big book, and I started listening to A Vision for You. What I was very surprised at was in step five, you know, the first time that I had done my fifth step, I uh, told my entire story to somebody, and really what I wanted to get out of that was I wanted validation. I wanted somebody to validate that I was a victim. Oh, everybody listened to how horrible my life was, and this is why I have to do what I did, and this and that. And that really was the victim mentality that I believed in my own mind. This last time, well, this time that I did the steps with the sponsor, she said to me, okay, um, in the fifth step, I want you to read to me only column four and column five, which was my part and my character defects. And I thought to my brain, like alarms started going off in my brain, and I thought to myself, wait, wait a second, what? You're not going to listen to my story? And she said to me that, you know, in the rooms I had heard that it's my secrets that keep me sick, but she said to me that it's my story that keeps me sick. It's the story that I tell myself, the lies that I tell myself that I'm a victim is what was holding me back. And so she taught me to let go of the drama of the story because, you see, I had been seeking drama and chaos. When I put down the food, I picked up chaos and drama to kind of distract me from having to feel, and that's what I had been using. So at this point, I have to put this down and just look at causes and conditions. And so moving forward, it was a very powerful experience, very, very powerful. But, um, and I did have some relief. But for me, the change came more like what's described as the educational variety, um, where it, it happens more slowly over a period of time by continuing to do this work again and again. Um, what I do today is I do 10 steps whenever I feel disturbed. I, I send them in a, via text message using uh, 13 words or less to my sponsor. Um, I do not get into a lot of the story. The most important part is uh, my, what, what is my part and what are my character defects because that's the only part that I have the ability to do something about. That is the only part that I have the ability to do something about. That is my own part in what's going on in my disturbances. So um, I look at my character defects and then I ask myself, what would God have me be if I didn't have these character defects? And then I spend time in my reflection in step 11 to think about what it would look like. But how do I become entirely ready? Well, I'm not able to do that by myself. I do it by doing the work repeatedly again and again. But more importantly, what I do is um, I do this work and um, I keep thinking to myself, uh, if I turn my will and my life over to God, what would I be like? And in doing this work, I often find that the universe will give me a lot of opportunities to practice. So after I keep seeing the same things happening again and again, I get to a point where I get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And then I'm ready to start, becomes like a working part of the mind by doing these, these uh, disciplines that I do in the, the 10 steps. It becomes a working part of my mind and sooner or later it begins to process very quickly. Because you see, taking the story out of it looking only at what I have the capacity to change, like that serenity prayer, makes a path a lot easier to stay on than going around and wasting my time trying to get validation from everybody about how I'm a victim. 
I realize today that I'm, I'm not a victim anymore, that I do have choices to be different. And with the help of a higher power, with the 12 steps, with good sponsorship and a fellowship, I'm able to make those changes one day at a time. But I, I do have to say that I, um, I can't be doing hokey pokey here. I, I often talk about that with my sponsees where I put one foot in, one foot out, one hand in, one hand out, and that doesn't seem to work for me. I think that I need to put my whole self into this program. I make a promise in uh, step three to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. I do that through the inventory process. And then it's through step 11, through the quiet reflection, self-evaluation, that I really look at how these character defects are affecting my life and what I would look like without it. And today, I live a life of less. And what I understood is that spirituality is never about more. It's always about less. And so it's less food, less things, less of me, less status-seeking, less attention, uh, less of everything, and just being being grateful. You know, I'm no longer seeking to fill my life with so many things. I'm just, I'm seeking to just be happy and be satisfied with what I do have and where I am and where I have to say working with others and, and seeing people change their life, that's so much more to me than all of the material possessions that I could possibly have. And uh, this program really does work. It works if I work it and I just have to keep after it. And the willingness Praise for the willingness, I think. Um, I do have a prayer that I say every day, and I'm just watching my time here. And that prayer, I'm going to leave you with this. Creator, give me the courage and strength to know who I really am, to act accordingly in my life, and to refrain from diverting my time, energy, and interest into my character defects. Thank you, and with that, I pass. Thank you, Tony Ann A. Step seven. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. I welcome Matt J.F. from Kentucky. Thank you, Leah, and thank you for the opportunity to speak this morning. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Matt J.F. I am a recovered and very grateful compulsive overeater in Northern Virginia, and um, I'm going to try and keep my qualification really short. Uh, I was born in a normal weight. I spent almost all of my life fat, clinically morbidly obese for almost all of my adulthood. Uh, I'm 52 right now. I'm five foot eight. My top weight was 380 pounds. Uh, that was back in 2003 when I had ruin Y gastric bypass surgery. And my weight eventually stabilized between 250 and 270. Uh, today, my weight hovers around 230. So am I still carrying more weight than is optimal? Yeah, uh, on my body, but I'm carrying so much less weight between my ears that um, I would gladly trade all of the weight that I've lost on my body to keep what I've lost between my ears. Um, I came into this program uh, not just someone who wasn't convinced that he qualified, but someone who actually had said out loud that I, I thought that Overeaters Anonymous was BS, except I didn't say BS. And uh, I didn't think I was one of, quote, those people who were powerless over food. Um, like, and like not, I, not only did I not think I was thought, I thought I was sure I was not one of you. Um, 
I had said that at some point in like 2018, probably. Uh, in, two, in early 2019, um, I had a sudden realization, thanks to God and Google, that uh, I was unequivocally a compulsive overeater. That for me to deny that for me there are some foods that once I start, I can't stop and I can't stop from starting would be like for me to deny that I have brown eyes. I, I have brown eyes. That is an observable, physical, documented fact about me, just as it is an observable, documented fact that for me there are some foods that once I start, I can't stop and I can't stop from starting. So uh, when I heard being a compulsive overeater described that way and suddenly identified in, um, I sort of crashed through the first three steps all at once. Like I had, step one was I had to stop denying an undeniable truth. Step two was, if it's really true that I, I do not have sufficient power to recover from this thing, I think if I want to recover, I have to, I have to at least pretend there is a source of power greater than me that can enable me to recover. And that to me just naturally follows from step one. And then that's what naturally follows from step two is, all right, if what's required to recover is that I turn my will and my life over to the care of God and start step four, let's do it. I'm going to do it. I didn't know what God was. I was an agnostic. I, I had no idea of what my conception of my higher power was. I suspected there was like something out there, but I didn't know what it was. But I just didn't worry about it. And I just crashed through the first three steps. Uh, eventually found a sponsor through this meeting who uh, took me through the steps out of the big book um, and uh and started working with my first sponsee at the end of uh, 2019. I've been abstinent and recovered uh, ever since. I've been abstinent since early February 2019. So that's my story. Um, step seven. Um, I have no idea what I'm about to say, so I guess we'll see where it goes. Um, but one thing that as I've been contemplating talking about step seven that I keep coming back to is that it strikes me that step seven for me, you know, it, it, when you're working through the steps, when you're working the steps, obviously each step is in order and you follow each step in order for a reason. And the reasons are known. I'm not going to get into them. But step seven, it seems to me, is the first time that there is a step that I have to do over and over and over again, every day. And and so like while it like I said, you know, it seems natural to me that if you take step one, then it's natural that you take step two, and then it's natural that you take step three. And step four is just like, well, I'm going to trust that the power I turn my will and my life over to, and step three is going to keep me safe as I look at the worst parts of myself. And then I get to step seven. And it's like, how do I know if I've sufficiently taken step seven, not in the context of working the steps, but in the context of living recovered? And the only answer that I could come up with is, it's not that I make a list of all people I have harmed and become willing to make amends to them all and then go make the amends. It's that I do less harm. And the way that I do less harm is by humbly asking God to remove my defects of character, to relieve me of the need to be right, to be smart, 
to be just, to be admired, to be lionized. And remember that I don't know anything about anything. If, if nothing else, what I got out of working step four and taking step five was, you know, there are 86,400 seconds in every day. And out of those 86,400 seconds in every day, I have spent every one of them trapped in the prison of my own broken brain. I have never once vacationed in anyone else's head. I have no idea. I don't even know what goes on in my head most of the time. What makes me think that I could have the first conception of why anyone else does what they do? I don't know why I do what I do. So for me, step seven is reconnecting to that. And by the way, like, I'm not saying that like I think I'm a bad person or broken. I'm human. That's the way I'm built. I am not built to have perfect situational awareness. I am not built to read other people's minds or allow them to read mine. That's not how I work. There's nothing wrong with me. It's just how I am. Step seven is the, for me is the process of reconnecting to that knowledge that I don't know anything. And if I don't know anything really worth knowing, and so, like, do I know some things that are true? Probably. Do I know the totality of their truth? Never. If you ask me what's in my pocket right now, I could probably make a guess and be right. I think that there's nothing in my pocket. But the truth is that's not true. There's lint and dust and millions, billions of molecules of air, and I'll never know how many. So while it's true as far as it goes, is it a complete answer? No. I never have complete answers about anything. So why is it so important? Like, it's fine that I have scripts that I'm selfish, right? That I have scripts that, that other people don't follow. That's fine. And it's fine that some of those scripts are so important to me that I may feel feelings when, uh, when they're not followed. And it's fine that I might lie, cheat, or steal to try and, like, uphold that script and prove that I'm right or smart or worthy of your respect or admiration. Because I am afraid, like my disease is this lurking notion that I'm a worthless piece of crap. All of that is fine. And none of it, I think, will ever change. What is essential is for me to reconnect to the knowledge that I don't know anything. I love that the last speaker talked about story. That what keeps me sick is not my secrets, but my story. Because I think a lot about, like, what's my personal mythology? Since I don't understand anything, I make up stories to explain everything the same way the ancient Greeks and Romans made up stories about there being a sun chariot being pulled across the sky by fiery horses because they didn't know what the sun was. Well, I don't know what anything is. So I make up stories all the time. And that's okay. It's not the point isn't for me to stop making up stories because I'm never going to know what's really true. The point is for me to stop believing my own stories, to stop pretending that my personal mythology is anything but an explanation of things that I don't understand. And to me, that is the process of step seven. How do I do, how do I know I've taken step seven? 
Am I doing less harm? Am I ceaselessly questing for the next right action? And like, like, am I, you know, we, we talk about this being a spiritual program of action or a program of spiritual action. I can't remember which one. And that there is this bias for action in working the steps. And I had a bias for action in my life that was rewarded in the professional context, but it turned out to be a terrible, terrible factor for my spiritual growth. What I found is that when I remember that I don't know anything and that if I don't reconnect to the notion that God is everything and I don't really know what's going on, that the safest way for me to do less harm is just to do less and await further instructions. That's what step seven is for me. It's just the practice of remembering that the times in my life when I am truly called to action are, are actually pretty rare, and they're always completely unambiguous. If the car hits black ice, I don't need to pause and pray to steer out of the skid. But if the car's not skidding on black ice, I find that often I do less harm by just doing and saying less and awaiting further instructions. And that's the impact that step seven, like, it wasn't like I took step seven and that was the impact it had on my life. It's that that's how I live recovered. And for me, step seven is where that's rooted. It's rooted in reconnecting to the notion that if I let my, def- if I let my, if I, if I'm in charge, we're all in trouble. That's, that's, that's how I live my life recovered. I just try and do and say a little less. And remember that my own stories are just myths. And I never really know what's going on. Among the things I don't know what's going on is I don't know how much of my time has elapsed. So I'm now going to fall back to say nothing and that I will pass. Thank you so much, Matt J.S. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. I welcome Anita J. from Massachusetts. Thank you, Leah. I um, am very grateful to be asked to be part of this important day, 11 years. I didn't find this vision 11 years ago, but let me just go back a bit before I mention that. I, too, was probably a compulsive overeater from the time I was little because it gave me a solace that I didn't get, uh, that I think you're supposed to get in a home. Um, But when your poor mother is a mentally ill alcoholic, she, um, she she couldn't give me what she couldn't get. She never had it. Do you know how I know that? Through doing these 12 steps. I didn't know that before. Anyway, um, I found the solace in the food, and then when I um, hit hit, uh, the time when boys are coming of interest, I discovered that they don't like fat girls. And I went on my first diet. I'm not even going to mention what it was. It was almost nothing to eat. Well, more than the five raisins or whatever. But 
it was very little. I ate it every single day, and I dropped the weight. And I kept it off until I met Mr. Wonderful. And uh, got on the honeymoon. We married. We went on the honeymoon. And we were going to a different ethnic restaurant every night. And I remember at the French restaurant, the waiter leaned over and whispered in my ear, Madame will get fat if she keeps eating like this. Well, there was my prophecy. There was my, um, you know, the stone that he read, he read a covenant in that cemetery in um, wherever it was. I knew it a minute ago. Anyway, that's what I wanted to just tell you. OA I discovered in 1978, but just going to those meetings, I, I, I loved how they loved when I shared. I loved it. So the thing is, great, great, Anita. But you dropped it, and then I had what I call my slow leak period, where I just kept gaining it all back. And then um, uh, it got worse. Up and down, huge amounts. 80 pounds is my most. Anyway, I was told to um, go to Vision for You, and I did. That was in early February 2014, and I learned something. Why I didn't know it before, who knows? And that was that you can't have one. Anita, you can't have one. And the only way you're not going to eat that first bite is through a higher power than you thought you had. So that's taken much more time than I expected. But I just want you to know that happened in 2014, and I started out on doing these steps. Done them before, but they not this way. And when I got to step eight, that's kind of what they call the looking back step. It's got to do with people and making things right. And so one of the people that changed my life, if she hadn't been on that list, it's got to be a complete list because one of them, if I hadn't had her on it, I never would have been rocketed, which folks, I was. I was in a new dimension. The moment I made the amend to a wonderful lady from uh, Texas, I'm from Massachusetts, and uh, we are members of an organization that has a re uh, retreat house up here in Mass, and she was there when I finally realized what I'd done to her. And when I told her, I kind of pulled her into my room, and she's so gracious, she kept saying, oh, no, you didn't do anything. But I knew I had. I knew I had. So I um, told her, and she finally admitted, I just froze her because you know what she did wrong? She did her job right. 
People told me when I ran for an office that there'd be nobody running against me because nobody wants that job. And that's how it had been every four years at the elections until now. Dear Betty did her job and had another person running against me and that person won. I carried that resentment, freezing her when I would go to things at the retreat house that she was there until I finally saw it and I had to. I did it. And I want to tell you that we did that in my bedroom. And when I went downstairs into the main room, it was as if the world had done a giant turnaround. Nothing looked the same. The people didn't look the same. The room didn't look the same. And you know, that's what you call going into the fourth dimension. I finally joined the human race. Anita J <laughs> joined the human race. And um, it's wonderful, do you know, folks? Being part of everybody else, just being yourself, just being yourself with other people, and especially this group. This is the group that changed my life. And I listened, and I still listen. This is the one thing I, you know, I can't even get on my knees anymore, but I flip-flop in my heart. I get on my knees and ask God's help every day. And um, he tells me that uh, he will go to vision, listen to the meeting, participate. And so with that, with great, great gratitude to all of you folks, I pass. Thank you, Anita J. Step nine, may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I welcome Jason Kay from Pennsylvania. Good morning. Thank you so much, Leah, and thank you to all our previous speakers and to Vision for You. It's a, it's an honor and a privilege to to speak today. I'm a recovered compulsive eater living in Pennsylvania, near Philadelphia in the suburbs. Um, and just to briefly qualify and kind of share my experience, I, I always had a strange relationship with food. Um, I, I It just kept getting worse. By the age of 20, I was into Overeaters Anonymous meetings because something was wrong with my food. I would eat, I would make myself throw up. Um, excessive preoccupation with food and over the next 17 years going to meetings in and out of meetings I didn't fully understand and comprehend that I had a fatal progressive illness characterized by this allergy of the body and these weird twists of mind and obsessions of the mind that brought me back to the food time and time again and this allergy which triggered this adverse abnormal reaction which meant I could not stop once I started eating I, I didn't know when that, that would end and, and I would go for a ride um, with binging day in and day out. Um, when I was 37, uh, I, I, I had uh, a deep, deep, deep step one experience after going to the Vision for You conference. And the step one experience was born out of pure desperation. Um, I couldn't go on doing what I was doing, living the way I was living, and I was desperate to change. Um, I was propelled through the steps with this step one experience. Uh, and now I'm going on six years of, of abstinence, like five and three quarters, something like that. 
Um, but I want to share about step nine. Step nine, I love, love, love this step, and I, I, I'm so grateful I get to speak on it. And, and the question is, how is it life-changing, and how did it impact my recovery and transformation? Well, let me share some specific stories. You know, we can talk theory, and you can read the book, and you can understand the philosophy, but I think what I can offer you today is a heartfelt um, personal a series of stories about amends that I made in this short time. And, and my first and foremost one was my ex-wife. She was the burning resentment that boiled down to this one particular sentence, she left me. And I remember even just powerfully like this one experience, I walked in my front door to my house and I shut the door and she came to mind and, and, and I just was flushed with feelings and anger and resentment. Um, after doing the fourth step and seeing how wrong I was, I had to become a changed person in, in a sense. And step nine is the opportunity to step out into the real world and to make a phone call and to meet with somebody and to, to, to share directly with that person the power of God in your life and the change that has happened and, and express the sincere willingness to admit those wrongs and to share those things and to make it right. And I talked to my ex-wife and, and, and I expressed with her how she made the absolute right decision to leave me, that I was a toxic person, it was a toxic relationship, she should have done that, she made a good decision. Uh, and that was my opener and she was willing to talk. And I shared in depth and in detail so many things that I felt I had wronged her, so many ways my character defects had affected her. And she just stopped me and she said, something has happened to you. I never thought I'd hear you say any of these things. Um, and what she really needed to hear and what she said is she said, I just felt like you hated me. And I said, I can see how you thought that. And I said, but I really loved this about you. And I listed 10 things and roughly 10 things. And she was blown away. Now, I think it's easy sometimes to make amends to the ex-wife, the people that are closest to us, because we're so invested. Those are people we've loved and, and our families, people we've grown up with. But what about when you have a couple of milk crates sitting in your garage? I used to steal these milk crates, right? You wouldn't think this is a big amends. You wouldn't think this would give me a lot of freedom. I had returned milk crates to stores. The people didn't seem to care. They said, you can keep them if you want. I said, no, I'm going to bring them back. I had done this before. I found more milk crates in my garage. I went down to the local store, which I stole them from, and I said, I am returning these. They are not mine. I stole them from you. I walked out of that store, and for some reason, I was brought to tears. I, I was flushed with feelings. I had goosebumps, and I felt this tremendous sense of lightness and freedom. And similar to our last speaker's experience, I looked around, and the sun seemed brighter, the trees seemed a crisper shade of green, and there was a lightness to my soul and my spirit. And in essence, that's the power of amends, to feel the lightness of your spirit. And somehow I felt and knew I was closer to my higher power. And, you know, I had a lot of, and I'll share some more experiences that, like money. Money for me, I always skimped. I always found reasons not to pay people. You know, I stole money from my mom when I was a kid, you know, because I wanted to go buy lunch at school. You know, I had to call her up and say, Mom, I stole money from your desk. She uh, she laughed because it was like 30 bucks and I was trying to buy lunch. And I paid her back and she took that money back. I stole money by not paying back loans. I called up and it's really powerful to call people in person. And I called this credit union and I said, I walked out on this loan. How much do I owe you? And, and she said, a many thousands of dollar figure. And I said, 
ouch, that hurts. And I said, don't you, don't you uh, negotiate like those credit card companies <laughs> to, to pay a portion of that? She said, no, we don't do that. She says, I said, okay, this kind of hurts. And she says, you hurt us when you didn't pay this. This hurts us. And she was absolutely right. I paid back every cent of that. Cent, cent of that. And I had an issue with the landlord. I thought I broke. I thought I broke the lease. I didn't break the lease correctly. I owed that guy thousands of dollars security deposits. And I happened to buy a house on the same street. And I paid all that money to him. I was in the wrong. I didn't read the the contract close enough. And I remember one day because I was literally moved a block away. I parked my car and I looked down that street and I said. I am not afraid to walk down that street and run into that man because I have paid every single cent I owe. And that tremendous feeling of freedom uh, and the weight lifted off my soul from doing all of my amends is a true promise. It's a true promise of step nine, freedom, um, freedom and closeness to your creator. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Jason Kay. Step 10 continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Lois P. from New York. Thank you, Leah, and good morning, everyone. Lois P. here, gratefully recovered in New York. Step 10, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So welcome to Step 10, a practice that ended a lifetime of gaslighting myself. When I came into program, I was 60 pounds overweight. And through working the steps, that weight is gone because I came to understand that the physical weight was an outer manifestation of the weight I was carrying around in my head and in my heart my whole life. When I first came to step 10 when working with a sponsor, I really became indignant and disheartened because it sounded as if I was always the problem. I was always to blame in every uncomfortable situation and that it was something in me that was always wrong. However, the more I worked the 10th step, guided by my beloved and very patient sponsor, I came to realize the 10th step process is a revelatory process. The step is not meant to add to my former default program of low self-esteem but rather to shine light on what frame of mind I've lived in that day that robbed me of peace of mind and therefore my happiness. So having done the heavy lifting of working through steps one through nine, I did my best to surrender my will and life to something greater than myself, uncovered and released a lot of burdensome memories filled with resentments and fears and hurts and shame, and then made amends to those that I may have harmed. So, now what? Well, page 64 in the big book gives us guidance. Quote, our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for a lifetime, end quote. How is that humanly possible, I thought, with everything I have to do in my life? Well, page 64 goes on. Quote, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them, end quote. So in reviewing my day, each day, am I angry, resentful, am I frightened, do I feel like a victim, 
Was I judgmental? Did I hurt someone's feelings? The big book continues on page 62, quote, so our troubles we think are basically of our own making. They arise, and this is very important for me to understand, out of ourselves. And the alcoholic or compulsive overeater is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so, end quote. And I certainly didn't think so. The 10-step process starts with identifying prejudicial thoughts about what life is presenting that I have held as truth. For example, it's his fault I feel this way. I can't trust her. She's hurt my feelings in the past. That person shouldn't be acting that way. I know better how things should be happening. Why isn't anyone listening to me? (laughs) What's wrong with everyone? These automatic and arrogant subconscious thoughts had to be made conscious and then transmuted into a higher wisdom by connecting to a greater power source. I humbly asked this great power to relieve me of my character defects, the unhealthy thoughts that I continually project onto other people, places, and things. Quote, simple but not easy, end quote, the big book tells us on page 14. Quote, a price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness, end quote. For me, that means putting aside my ego and humbly acknowledging that I am not the center of the universe, nor of anyone else's. And actually, living in this realization is a game changer for me, and it comes with great relief. There is a deep relaxation that occurs in recognizing that God lives within each heart and guides the unfolding of that life in its own precious time, and I have nothing to do with it. So, step 10 wakes me up to what thoughts are going on inside of me. Step 10 is a process of self-awareness where I become cognizant of the stories I've been telling myself that day, essentially gaslighting myself. A wise sponsee recently told me that our thinking is mentioned over 65 times in the big book. Yes, maybe a friend reneged on a commitment, or my husband yelled at me, or someone cut me off in traffic, or my boss took credit for my work. Yes, these things do happen. But I understand now it's how I react to these events that determines the quality of my life not the outer world. Quote, first of all, we have to quit playing God, end quote. We are instructed in the chapter how it works. And then it reveals an antidote for our unhappiness on page 84. Quote, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, end quote. Then we have access to an entirely different state of being. We begin to experience, as did I, a sense of relief and freedom, I was now entering and beginning to live in the fourth dimension, as spoken of in the big book. When I'm wrong, I promptly admit it. When I become aware of negative thinking, I ask my higher power to immediately remove it and provide me a higher, more loving perspective. Step 10 has allowed me to continue to watch my thoughts, my character defects, because these are the self-defeating habit patterns that provoke emotions that formally went unrecognized and, of course, reactivated my inner misery. So it's how I think about what life is presenting that triggers an emotional response in me and not the circumstances or people that determine my state of mind. This essential practice of self-awareness without self-judgment clears the path for the emergence of the divine power. 
the supreme consciousness that dwells within us as us. Quote, we have entered the world of the spirit, end quote, the big book assures. And now we will hear more about this in step 11. Thank you, Leah, for giving me the opportunity to share. Thank you, Lois P. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. I welcome Dawn B. from California. Hi, good morning. This is Dawn B., Recovered Compulsive Overeater from Southern California. And it is an honor to be here with you today. Ah, Yes, well, before I begin to talk about Step 11, just a brief history. Uh, I came into this OA when I was 18 years old, back in the late 1970s, if you can believe that. I came in... um, when I was in college, and um, yeah, I was definitely a uh, full-blown compulsive overeater um, of the uh, chronic variety. And I, at one point, I got up over 100 pounds, what I am right now. Um, I am a compulsive overeater, and um, yes, definitely an addict a chronic addict and so um now uh what i do is i look back at my past when i came in and i um just realize that i am hopeless i am lost and just like it says in the doctor's opinion i am doomed And I had to come to the realization that there is nothing that I have to look forward to but a lot more pain and a lot more suffering and an early death. Or I need to clearly identify my alcoholic foods and behaviors and put them down 100% and grab hold of this program with all the enthusiasm that a drowning person grabs a life preserver and work this like my life depends on it because it absolutely does. And that's what I did. And uh, it took me uh, 35 years in the rooms before I was able to get abstinent for any length of period of time. But that final realization that I will die in this disease, and this is absolutely life or death. And that hit me uh, 11 years ago now. Um, And all thanks be to God, I'm down over 100 pounds from my top weight. I don't actually know how much because I stopped weighing myself when I got the heaviest, but I'm now at a normal body weight, and I don't need to lose any more weight. Um, And the miracle, I'm abstaining and doing so happily, so the food isn't calling to me. It's not a struggle. I'm not white-knuckling it. It's simply the most loving thing I can possibly do for myself. And this is an absolute miracle. Um, I'm also a mother. I have four young adult children. Um, Three of them have autism. One very, very severe. Both my sons may never live on their own. Um, The two that are higher functioning also have mental illness. They have schizoaffective disorder. And my husband is a cancer survivor. He's uh, on a feeding tube with chronic ongoing health conditions. But the truth of the matter is, I am living a life beyond my wildest dreams. 
not because my circumstances have changed, but because my attitude about my circumstances has been transformed through the working of the steps and through the relationship of my higher power, which brings me to the life-changing, life-impacting step 11, where I am seeking through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as I understand God. And that first word, sought, means I'm seeking, I'm actively working, and it is um, something that I'm to be working at, just like it says on the top of page 86 and bottom of page 85, where it talks about step 11, um, suggesting prayer and meditation. Um, Better men than us are using it constantly. It works if we have the proper attitude and work at it. So this is my job. This is what I'm to be working at during the day. Um, And meditation is uh, just thoughtful consideration, pondering, uh, it can be pondering some a phrase in the big book. It can be pondering a prayer. Um, it can be also meditation for myself. I can practice it in silent, uh, you know, just silent, watching my breath, um, just focusing on my breath and clearing my mind. And uh, or it can be focusing on a certain phrase. Um, there's different ways of meditating, and I love to just explore them all. Uh, each one has been a gift in my life and has been really uh, wonderful. There's also meditating, listening to music. Um, just I've heard a definition of prayer, raising of the heart and mind to God. So anything that connects me with the loving presence of my higher power, and this has truly been uh, life-changing for me. Um, when I focus on the loving presence of my higher power and just resting in that infinite love, that infinite uh, peace and wisdom, it is life-changing and has been for me. It has taken me from a person who is fighting everything and everyone to uh, where I am being able to find peace that isn't dependent upon circumstances. He, in step 11, where it says, what am I to be praying for? I'm to be praying for knowledge only, knowledge, will for me, and the power to carry that out. That's what I'm to be praying for. And that, for me, has uh, really been transformational. The fact that I'm not, um, my relationship with God used to be uh, more like a, a drive-through restaurant relationship, you know, pull in, I want this, God, I want this, I want this, hold the this, I don't want any of that, God, and um, please make it right now and quickly. And, uh, you know, kind of like that drive-through relationship uh, with my higher power. But it has tr- been transformed to where now I am really uh just like it says, I'm praying only for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out. And um, so with my children, I am asking, God, what is your will for me, God? Please help me to see my children more like you see them, God. Please help me to love them as you would delight in me loving them, God. Please help me to see my situation more like you see it. 
Your will be done, not mine, God. Comparatively speaking, I am blind, but you see perfectly. Help me to see the situation more like you see it, God. And may your will be done, not mine. And the beautiful prayer that's written on page uh, 85. I'm sorry, where it says, um, there it is. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. And when I relax and surrender and ask for God's will to be my only goal, I can experience peace regardless of my circumstances. Help me to see this more like you see it, God. Help me to love my children and my husband as you would delight in me loving them. Your will be done, not mine. And that has truly been transformational. Thank you so much for allowing me to share. Thank you so much, Dawn B. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And I welcome Harlan G., from Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you very much, Leah. I'm going to do the best I can. My voice is a little shaky. I got diagnosed with COVID on Friday, so I'm a little shaky voice-wise, but other than that, we'll get through it. The bottom of page 14, the bottom of page 14 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson writes, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles. What are the principles? principles are the steps in all my affairs particularly was it imperative what does that mean imperative it means important above all else to do what to work with others as he had worked with me faith without works was dead he said and how appallingly true for the alcoholic here's a warning for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. Very specifically, he's telling me how to enlarge and perfect my spiritual life. He could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed with us, and it's just like that. So this paragraph is telling me that I must sponsor And I am weary of hearing people. I came in in 1979. I was 24 years old, February 2nd. It was a Friday night. I don't want to sponsor. I don't know if I should sponsor. I'm not going to sponsor. I'll just make the coffee. We used to have coffee at the meetings in those days. I'll just pick so-and-so up for, no, that's not what he's telling me. Those things are important. Those things are vital. But we need sponsorship to work a 12-step program. Without sponsorship, I'm working an 11-step program. That doesn't work. Let's take a look at step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So it, it requires me to have had a spiritual awakening. Now, if I have had a spiritual awakening, It says we tried to carry this message. Excuse me. What message is 
that? Is that my message? No. Is that the message of what I think you should do with your life? No. What I think you should do in your relationships or financially? No. It says this message, the message of the big book. Now, we are all carrying a message. Whether we want to be carrying one, whether we think we're carrying one, we are carrying a message. And I remind, I'm reminded, excuse me, I'm reminded of a time in 1998, 97, no, this is before that, when my daughter was not quite two years old. She was born in 94. This would be the summer of 96. And she was 19 months old. And I'm in complete relapse at this time. My weight is ballooning up. I'm, I'm gaining weight in leaps and bounds. And my little daughter, my little baby daughter is in the kitchen. And my then wife just got in from the grocery store. She must have bought half the store. And she's putting away groceries. And we're talking. It was a Sunday morning just like this. And my daughter opens up the refrigerator and looks back at her mother and she says, shit, Esther, there's nothing in here. I wonder where she got that. How many times did I go to that refrigerator and say, shit, Esther, there's nothing in here in my relapse? number of years later, we were living in Scottsdale, Arizona. And it was the premiere episode of a comedy on ABC called My Name is Earl about two guys that won the lottery and they were going around making amends. And she it was the premiere episode of this show. And just from being around me in recovery, she looked at the TV, she looked at me, looked at the TV, looked at me and said, those guys are just doing their, their eighth and ninth step, right, Dad? I said, yes, Mamala, that's what they're doing. And that's the difference because we are carrying a message whether we want to be carrying one or not. And Dr. Bob left us with an inheritance. He left us with a treasure. And he said to us in 1950, the last time he spoke publicly was in Cleveland, Ohio. Not long before he died. He said, let's not louse this up with complexities that are only of interest to the clinician, the psychologist, the therapist. Let's not louse this up with complexities. Let's keep this simple. And he told, tell, warns us that at the very last, that what this boils down to is love and service. We all know what love is. We all know what service is. And he said... Let's be weary, let's be wary of that erring member among us, the tongue. Let's use it judiciously because no man ever looked as good in God's eyes as when he is bending over to help his fellow alcoholic occupy the rung of the ladder on which he now stands. We must sponsor this is how we grow. This is how we grow our fellowship. And there are people that are coming in today that are broken and have been shattered. 
and have been shattered and destroyed beyond recognition by a disease that they don't even know they have in most cases. Or they are returning after horrible relapses. Let's just not focus on the newcomer. The newcomers are our life's blood, yes. But there are people sitting in these rooms today that are here for 20, 30 years, and they are in the throes of their disease. And they need help. And you are qualified to help them because you speak and understand the language of the heart. And to the shattered, to the shattered, you are, you are the only lifeboat they have to the world you're a person to that person you can be the world and you can light them up as no one can I'm reminded of something that every good deed achieves an immortality I had a friend his name is Scott he's dead now unfortunately he's a, he was a, a character and a half character and a half and he was an actor Got a play, got himself a a, a a a spot in a play in New York. Went out there, met a girl, and when the play was done, I got to take a drink of water here. I'm gonna die. They moved to Los Angeles, and he was very active in AA. And it was a Saturday night, and he was on the phone. Guy calls up. He's in a motel in East LA. And he goes out with another guy to this motel, and they're talking to this guy, and they realize the guy's falling asleep. So they put his whiskey bottle on the table there, and they took his shoes off for him and put him to bed. Five years later, five years later, he is speaking at an Alcazan in San Diego. And a guy, when he was done with his lead, walks up to him, throws his arms around him and says, are you Scott? And he says, yes. And he says, you saved my life. And my friend Scott says, I don't believe I know you. He says, oh, yes. You remember when you were in that motel in East L.A. And you were talking to my friend. Yes. He says, I was hiding under the bed. And I heard every word you said. And I haven't had another drink. I haven't had a drink since that night. You never know who's hiding under the under the bed. You never know. And there are people that we don't know their names today that gave their lives for this program. There's an unbroken chain. Leah spoke of it when we were starting. Leah was talking about us. June the 10th, 1935, between a New York City man by the name of Bill Wilson and an Ohio guy. They were both actually from Vermont, but a guy in Ohio named Dr. Bob. And on that day, June the 10th, 1935, a spark was struck. And there was a guy, and his name was Jim Willis. Jim Willis was a gambler and an alcoholic. And he 
knew that gamblers needed a place to go to share and recover that were not alcoholic. And in 1955, in Oxnard, California, he started a program called Gamblers Anonymous. And in 1959, November of 59, there was a show called the Paul Coates Show. Coats like what you wear in the winter. And it was on in Los Angeles, and there was a housewife named Roseanne Scholar. Roseanne was watching the show. She had just put her two babies to bed, and she was watching the show. And she knew that her husband, Marvin, he had a friend that had a problem with gambling. And they took this friend of Marvin's to a meeting of Gamblers Anonymous in Los Angeles, and Jim Willis just happened to be there. And Roseanne listened in shock to the shares. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and as, he, as she listened, she identified right down the line. And she walked up to Jim Willis at the end of the meeting and said, Jim, do you think a program like yours could help someone like me with food? And he said, you know, Roseanne, I don't see why not. And on January the 19th, 1960, as was stated by Leah before we started, the very first meeting of, of Overeaters Anonymous took place in Los Angeles, California. That's why we celebrate the OA birthday when and where we celebrate it in Los Angeles. In January. Now, in Luling, Texas, in Luling, Texas, in 1961, there was a man there, and his name was A.G. Ainsworth, big Texan. I can see him now. I can hear him now. He started a group. I'm trying to condense this because I know time is a factor. He started a group out of necessity with a woman named Norma B. Glutton's Anonymous. And if you check any good dictionary, glutton really describes me better than a compulsive overeater ever could. And by 1961, the summer, there was five groups of Glutton's Anonymous and 16 groups of Overeaters Anonymous. And Norma B. and A.G. Ainsworth and the five groups got together in Luling, Texas, and they called up the AA office. And they wanted to know, did they know of anybody that was using these steps and the book of AA to carry the message? And they turned them on to Roseanne. And on a Sunday afternoon, they called Roseanne and it was like Stanley finding Livingston. They flew out to Los Angeles, representatives of the five groups of Gluttons Anonymous. Uh, A.G. had a private plane. They flew out there, and A.G. became the first chairman of the Board of Trustees for the new group. And in a vote of 16 to 5, we became Overeaters Anonymous. And we have flourished thusly. But we need you 
we need you because to the world you're a person and to the person that's suffering you can be the world there are unique things about your story that can save countless lives and the third part of this step is to practice these principles in all of our affairs but I want to close with this which is I'll do it quickly. I know my time is pretty much up. I have a lot I could say here. I don't have the time to say it. And I'm, you can't tell this, but I'm screaming at the top of my lungs just to be heard. Well, I'm on page 100. Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. Closing, I want to say happy 11th birthday to Vision. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, Leah, Melanie, Amy, uh, uh, trying to think, Virginia, uh, F, uh, Katie, F, thank you. I can't even think. I'm, my brain is so muddled from all this, uh, the, the, the COVID and everything. But thank you to all of you. The sun never sets on what you've done. The sun never sets on this. And you've saved a lot of lives. Now, if you're here and you're listening and they've saved your life, go save someone else. Go save someone else. And that's that's our job. That's what we're here to do. I'm done, not because I have nothing to say, but because I can't talk anymore. Leah, I'll give it back to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Harlan G. And thank you to all our speakers today. And a heartfelt thank you to our Vision for You family. You have just heard 12 recovered compulsive overeaters each have described in their own personal way how the 12 steps and God have made a life-changing impact on their minds and hearts, producing a profound and revolutionary change resulting in a spiritual awakening and freedom. Twelve voices woven together, creating a powerful message of hope and possibility. I will now close from page 164 in a chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road 
of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.